Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you had a great weekend celebrating Ronald Reagan's birthday. Maybe you watched the uh, really, really exciting Pro Bowl, which no longer features tackling. Uh, that was that was super exciting. Uh, Queen Elizabeth on the throne for 70 years. You know, some people can't hold down a job. She's not didn't have that problem. Uh, Jim, let's get on to our uh, our good martini. We actually have two of them today: two goods and a bad. And let's start with the first good. And it's good news that we've started to clarify this. What's in this study is not good news because it's going to drive people crazy after what we've all been through for nearly two years now. This is uh, the version uh, from the Washington Examiner. Republicans touted the results of a prominent new study that found early pandemic lockdowns meant to stem the spread of COVID-19 were not effective. The meta-analysis, meaning a study of studies, was led by Steve Hankey, an applied economics professor at Johns Hopkins University and director of the Troubled Currencies Project at the Libertarian Cato Institute. The team of economists reported that worldwide pandemic lockdowns only prevented 0.2% of COVID-19 deaths. Critics of the pandemic restrictions boosted the study with Kentucky Senator Rand Paul saying the one thing we do know that did work is vaccines and natural immunity. So we should emphasize what works, said Rand Paul on Fox News. The study is an extensive analysis looking at dozens and dozens of studies, bringing them together and said lockdowns did not reduce mortality, but were devastating to the economy. And I would add our kids. So, Jim, I don't think this comes as a huge shock at this point. I think the data had already come in pretty conclusive on this. And so, given everything we sacrificed uh, to know that 0.2% would have been the difference if we pretty much uh, kept living as normal, is pretty discouraging, but hopefully we'll never make this mistake again. Hopefully. <laughs> but looking at Australia and Canada, it's fair to wonder if someday uh, that mistake could be made again. One of the things that I wonder about every now and then, Greg, is this idea that if the virus had not originated in China, well, one, we would have known a lot more about the virus a lot quicker, <clears throat> as I'm still overcoming my recent infection of COVID-19. But the thing is that, you know, we, we all remember the, you know, seemingly insane ways that China's, and particularly the Wuhan government, were responding to this at first. The images of them flooding the streets with this, you know, chlorine-like gas, it seemed like, I guess, is disinfectant, uh, welding people into their apartments and things like that. And... Uh, if this virus had started someplace like France, like would those have been the first steps done? My guess is no, right? In, in any kind of Western country, any country that was democratic, that had a uh, uh, decision-making leadership that was a little more respective of people's inherent human rights, those would not have been the first steps that people would have gone to. And I kind of wonder how many leaders in the West watched what China was doing and thought, oh my God, we got to do that too. Uh, you know, it sounds really extreme, but we, we got to do something at least close to that. Thankfully, in this country, we weren't welding people into their apartments, but we had to go to that kind of blanket coast to coast. Don't leave your house. You're allowed to leave your house to go to the grocery store, the pharmacy. And that's about it. You know, that kind of stay in your home citizens uh, kind of mentality. And even anybody with a, with a you know ounce of common sense would have recognized if, God forbid, we were in one of those, you know, uh, Will Smith end of society disaster kind of movie scenarios. Okay, yeah, that's the kind of scenario where you want to avoid contact with anybody that and like zombies or something. But by and large, something that is 
uh, flu-like, but you know, particularly dangerous to people who are elderly, immunocompromised, uh, who have multiple comorbidities, then the folks who aren't in those categories could generally go about their lives. And if they got COVID-19, it was going to, you know, hit them like a bad flu. That's not good, you know, but it's not going to kill them. And the question of, okay, so we can keep the rest of society going with all these folks who are not afflicted with comorbidities or elderly or immunocompromised or things like that. But instead of trying to prioritize, okay, who are we really trying to protect? You know, we saw the utterly inane decision-making around nursing homes, around assisted living facilities and, and things like that. And there was no sense of being able to say, okay, this virus presents very little threat to children. There's really no reason we have to shut down that playground. There's really no reason we need to keep kids off of that kind of stuff. And the other thing is, is that even if you thought this was a good step. And I think this, you know, this study pretty much you know, drives a stake into the argument that sweeping society-wide lockdowns are a good step, is this sense that you, uh, you, you can't expect people to do this for long periods of time. Eventually, human beings need human contact. There's, you know, we, we consider it you know, uh, solitary confinement to be cruel and unusual punishment. And lo and behold, that's what the, they were trying to enact for everyone who are guilty of no crime. Uh, for a really extended period of time, including kids. And it just was this, uh, we're seeing, you know, the widespread psychological and societal effects of that. Um, just kind of, you kind of sit there and think, okay, if, if from the very beginning we had recognized, okay, this is bad, this is worse than MERS, this is worse than the first SARS, this is worse than H1N1 and Zika, but we didn't shut down society for all of those. So we probably don't need to shut down society for this one. Um, a, a, a virus that is contagious as this, even if you tell everybody to wear masks, some people are not going to wear their masks right. You know, lo and behold, we found out. You know, it became very clear cloth masks actually don't make much, don't, don't do much good. We might as well be wearing sweaters on our faces. You know, we ended up with all of this this advice at the beginning of this that didn't help, and in fact inflicted these serious consequences. And I, I agree with you, Greg. You know, yes, the economic consequences were really, really bad, but the consequences for children are the ones that just kind of jump towards the top of the list there. So I'm glad to see this study. I'm glad to see this study is being emphasized and they're beating the drums for it. I, there's one more step for this, which is accountability for the people who made those decisions back in March 2020. Yes. I don't know if that's ever going to come. My guess is probably not, considering that they are well protected by our media, the Fauci's and Redfields and Burkses of the world. But uh, I'd like a refund. I'd like my freedom back, uh, please. And uh, hopefully that's going to come soon. But, you know, the Chinese would argue that, hey, ever since we sprayed and welded, nobody else died of COVID. So uh, that's a big lie. Just look at our official numbers. <laughs> Just look at the straight lines on our charts. Aren't they pretty? Well, you don't I get want straight lines like that in geometry class. Or draft it. <laughs> yes, I need a I need a ruler to draw lines that straight. But look, you don't want your doors welded shut for a lot of reasons. You don't want the government having that kind of control. But you also can't get your moink box if your door is welded shut. The moink box is a fabulous collection of absolutely fantastic meat, steaks, and pork chops, and chicken, and bacon. The best bacon, the best steak, the best chicken, the best salmon you'll ever eat. It's not coming from a grocery store. You're only going to find it on the family farm and caught by independent Alaska fishermen. And all of it ends up in your moink box, which you can get at moinkbox.com. What a smooth transition, Greg. Thank you. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, 
and all the other junk that you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash martini to get a year of ground beef for free. And then pick whatever meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel anytime. The first thing I had from a Moink box was bacon. It's some of the best bacon I've ever had and has never disappointed uh, since either. The steaks are soft, they're flavorful, they're easy to grill, they're easy to cook, however you do it. Uh, and uh, the chicken, the pork chops, all the way through it. There's nothing you won't like inside the Moink box. High, high quality products. Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash martini right now. And listeners to the Three Martini Lunch will get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you will ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash martini. That's moinkbox.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move on to our second good martini now. And this was obviously a fairly tentative one, but we'll take any good news we can get in averting massive war on the uh, Russia-Ukraine border. Uh, This is from CNN. Uh, three different authors on this. Intercepted communications obtained by the U.S. have revealed that some Russian officials have worried that a large-scale invasion of Ukraine would be costlier and more difficult than Russian President Vladimir Putin and other Kremlin leaders realize, according to four people familiar with the intelligence. Three of the sources said those officials include intelligence and military operatives. The officials have also grumbled about their plans being discovered and publicly exposed by Western nations, two of the sources said, citing the intercepted communications. I was going to say, I think that would be more effective if we were pushing that behind the scenes. But uh, there's no evidence that these officials are opposed to the overall plan or would revolt against Putin's orders. Two of the sources said another source familiar with the U.S. intelligence noted that Russia has a professional military that would be expected to effectively carry out Putin's orders. So uh, the bad news is, is, you know, as you would expect, the military is going to do what Putin tells them to do. But there's at least voices inside the Russian government saying uh, for a variety of reasons, Jim, this is not a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Yeah. And and from the beginning, there's been this art, you know, this big question of what does Putin actually really want? Does he want Ukraine and is he willing to go into an all-out war to get it? Or is this something of a feint? Is he basically saber-rattling? Does he want to basically, you know, pressure the West to make some sort of concession, territorial or otherwise? And, you know, then he's going to take you and say, okay, I got what I want. Pick all his chips and go home, so to speak. And I, it's interesting in light of, there was an Austrian um, political analyst who basically was looking at it from the perspective of Europe. And he said that, if you're Putin, you like where you are right now. NATO's got some inter- internal fighting. Germany doesn't really want to fight. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of panic. Putin looks very strong. Uh, Biden looks kind of, you know, like he doesn't have any influence over the situation. He's, he's trying to galvanize NATO, but it's tough. Um, the economic pressure on the, the fear of using natural gas and, and oil from Russia as a weapon is, is stirring up fears in Europe. And uh, it, you know, right now, if you're Putin, things are looking really, really good. If you actually do a full-scale all-out invasion, everything changes really fast. And high among it is that everybody, anybody in NATO who's kind of got this, well, you know, look, we don't like Putin, but nobody wants a war, and he's rational, he's somebody we can do business with, all of a sudden that gets completely discredited. All of a sudden, there really isn't any, hey, let's not be too hasty about this response in in all of Europe. This effectively would make Europe decide, okay, we have to stand up to Putin. We don't have any choice anymore. This would lead to more NATO forces going to the the Baltic states. This would probably lead to 
more of a military buildup in the European parts. It would quash any progressive dovish. Uh, there was a small you know, segment of House Democrats who actually don't like what, what uh, President Biden is doing here and who basically feel like he's getting pulled into this bellicose, hawkish position. Well, if, if Putin goes out and invades uh, Ukraine, then the hawks are vindicated. And it makes anybody who's been saying, no, no, we can have a stable, predictable relationship with Russia look really foolish and probably drives a stake into that idea for at least another decade or so. And so in other words, like all of a sudden, all the consequences start to kick in. All of a sudden, it looks worse. So there was this also this assessment from a guy who was an intelligence analyst for the Ukrainian military up until a few years ago, where he said, look, Russia's, you know, Putin's ball game is always to do the, the salami tactics, is the slow boiling of the frog. He's not going to do a full all-out invasion. He's going to do this gradual, slight, slow, little green men, men outside of uniform, crossing over the border, expanding what they're doing in the Donbass, cyber attacks, propaganda, stuff like that. He's going to try to make Ukraine as chaotic as possible. And only then will he send in larger number of troops. So that he thinks is the you know there was Putin's thinking a much longer term scenario, months down the road, maybe even years down the road. But he will get his hands on a big chunk of Ukraine. So worth keeping that stuff in mind. And I do wonder if the administration did err a bit in the way they described Putin's invasion as imminent. And uh, Politico had a fascinating article where they said that one of the big reasons that Zelensky over in the Ukraine was upset about using the word imminent is that in the, in the Ukrainian language, there is no word for imminent. The word, the closest word that and the word they kept using in the translations was inevitable. Now, I think you and I would, you know, in English would say, okay, imminent and inevitable are similar, but they don't quite mean the same thing. And, you know, I guess for obvious reasons, Zelensky was freaking out that Biden kept running around saying, you know, through the, you know, through the Ukrainian translation, a Russian invasion is inevitable. Um, so just kind of interesting perspective on that. And I do wonder if Putin, if Putin thinks that by dragging this out, he can make Biden and NATO look a little bit like Chicken Little reacting to a threat that is just sitting there on the border and not coming across the border. Amazing. Yeah, it's been very odd. That's, that's, it's good to have a little bit of insight on this. It's so odd to have the United States saying, this is going to happen tomorrow, maybe. And the Ukrainians are like, yeah, we're fine. We're fine. Uh, so it's just kind of reversal of, of what you would think uh, when the troops are on your border as opposed to ours. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you saw the story over the last couple of days where a retired Russian general was denouncing what appears to be Putin's ambitions in Ukraine. I, I assume he's the next time he eats in public, he's going to get a side order of polonium. But uh, I was going to say, don't order the soup, buddy. <laughs> so, we laugh because, you know, it's true. Uh, it probably doesn't have much longer in this world. But uh, interesting to see that there's also folks behind the scenes uh, who are not going to stick their necks out publicly at this point, saying that they don't think this is a good idea. So maybe uh, he was uh, taking the taking the hit for all of them or will soon. For at least right now, you can rest easy, I think, maybe, at least for today. Uh, but if you want to rest easy, uh, get some fantastic products from MyPillow. you got the fantastic pillows. You also have the great Giza Dream Sheets. Nothing better than slipping into bed with soft, comfortable sheets at the end of the long day. And there's no better sheets than the Giza Dream Sheets. And right now, when you use our promo code MARTINI at MyPillow.com, for a limited time, you will receive 60 Six zero sixty percent off any Giza Dream Sheets with a price as low as thirty nine ninety nine. The Giza Dream Sheets are made from the world's best cotton, grown only in a region between the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River. The long staple cotton makes these sheets ultra soft and breathable. The sateen weave gives them a luxurious finish, and they're available in a variety of colors and sizes. 
The Giza Dream Sheets are machine washable, come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. And what's more, they have a four-inch hem on the flat sheet and pillowcases, and the fitted sheet comes with fully enclosed elastic hems with deep pockets. So they're never coming off the bed, off the mattress. That's fantastic. Save 60% now with the Giza Dream Sheets flash sale. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use the promo code MARTINI at checkout. Or use that code when you call 800-874-0104 to get the Giza Dream Sheets for as low as $39.99. You'll also find very deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. These will be gone in a flash, so head to MyPillow.com, promo code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104. Sleep better with MyPillow.com. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now, and this is staggering to me. It's it's infuriating for a number of reasons. One of the things we celebrated in the 2020 elections was the fact that the Democrats, despite pumping a ton of money into state legislative races, failed to retake a single body of any state legislature, which is always important, but it's especially important in a year ending in zero because it means that whoever controls the legislature, in most states anyway, controls the redistricting process for the House of Representatives. Now, some of these states, like my home state of Michigan and, and where we live now, Virginia, have these independent commissions, which aren't independent at all, but uh, they've taken the legislature out of the mix. But other states, most states, still have the legislature do this. And for the most part, you know, I'm fine with that. Uh, elections have consequences. I'm not a big fan of the most obscene uh, gerrymandering and uh, in some of these places that you can't even figure out how these different parts of the district connect to each other. But what we're learning is, is that Republicans have pretty much squandered this opportunity, Jim, at least on that front. It's only going to be Biden's unpopularity that might get him the control of the House of Representatives. Right now, about two-thirds of the redistricting has been done. And Dave Wasserman over at the Cook Political Report is saying that Democrats have taken the lead on the Cook Report's uh, redistricting scorecard after favorable developments in New York, Alabama, Pennsylvania, and other places. They're on track to net two to three seats between the new maps versus the old ones. And it's for a couple of reasons. First of all, some Republicans are timid because they don't want to be accused of overt gerrymandering by Barack Obama and Eric Holder, and so they don't get as aggressive as they potentially could. Other states did get pretty aggressive, like Ohio and North Carolina. The Democrats took them to court, and the Democrats won, so they're going to have to redo those maps. Texas is being taken to court by the Justice Department because they don't think that's fair. Republicans control that state. Meanwhile, in places like Illinois and New York, uh, the Democrats have gone hog wild and radically redrawn things to make it uh, a pickup of several seats in both of those states for Democrats. I don't even know that Republicans are severely uh, challenging what's going on in Illinois. They are right now in New York, but uh, who knows how the courts are going to rule on this. And so, Jim, this was supposed to be a big advantage for Republicans heading into this year's midterms. Now, depending on how the remaining states go, it'll pretty much be a wash at best. Yeah. No, by the way, there are a couple of things that jump out about this. The first is, as you noted, we still got roughly a third of House districts to go. So it's conceivable that this, you know, these final things change. Um, Wasserman basically says that of these 301 House districts under the old lines, Joe Biden won 167 of them. If you had the same results as 2020 election with the current lines, he would have won 173. So it's a gain of about five, right? Six, pardon me. So, you know, like you'll get, oh, well, that's good. Well, okay. First of all, not every House Democrat runs at the same level Biden does. 
And the second thing worth keep in mind is that the way the polling is looking, 2022 looks like it's going to be such a giant red tsunami in the House races. It's probably not going to make that much of a difference anyway. That having been said, there's been this narrative of, you know, oh, isn't it terrible what Republicans are doing with redistricting? And no one has been beating the drum for that more than former President uh, Barack Obama and former Attorney General Eric Holder. And yet they never have any objections to what's happening in Illinois or New York. Barack Obama and Eric Holder would have you believe that gerrymandering is a problem when Republicans do it. When Democrats do it, it's just fine. It's just a unbelievably ludicrous double standard. And I cannot believe anybody else in the media doesn't call them out on this. And was kind of revealing that in the minds of the media, the purpose of redistricting is to maximize the advantage for Democrats. The one other detail I think we should throw in here is that as you're drawing these district lines, one way, you know, like it's a question of what is your priority? Probably the best case scenario is try to create as many districts as you have that are like 55% for your party and 45% for the other party. So you got a pretty solid one, but that way you can spread out your voters into enough districts to create enough districts that are likely to go your way, but aren't splitting 60-40 or 70-30 or something like that. The you know, One of the things you can do, though, is you can create more seats that are absolutely you know guaranteed to stay with you even in a bad year. And I wonder if that was the other calculation at work. Plus, there's always protecting incumbents, which is always a... Uh, enormous appetite of incumbents to make sure, you know, like, I don't want to have a, a seat that's good for me. I want to have a seat where I'm absolutely, you know, bulletproof, so to speak. And there's, you know, even in a bad wave year, I'm going to keep holding on to this seat, which I suspect has been what's been the mentality of a lot of uh, uh, Republicans here. The goal is not necessarily to create the highest ceiling possible. The goal is to create the lowest, the highest floor possible. I don't know if I love that philosophy, but at least I can understand why they get behind it. The third thing is, wouldn't it be fascinating, Greg, if we go through this entire cycle of people screaming, Republican gerrymandering, and Democrats have the advantage through gerrymandering, through a variety of all the ways that you mentioned. And then in the end, it doesn't matter because Republicans end up winning 40 House seats anyway. (laughs) Well, that would be a nice coda to this. Here's the dirty little secret in this, because this just happened in Michigan. I was following this a little bit, is what they're trying to do in some of these Democratic states is instead of having one district uh, you know, deep in the city uh, where there's a huge majority black population, they try to get a, a decent-sized black population into a bunch of different districts and hopefully create Democratic members <coughs> of Congress that way. But what happened in Michigan with the independent, and I use that word in quotes because it's you know Democratic-led, but... Uh, there was a challenge to the new map, the new congressional map, by black groups and black voters because they want they want a representative that pretty much uh, represents that whole community. The Supreme Court shot their uh, challenge down uh, in Michigan last week, and so it looks like the map is going to stay. But it's it's fun to watch the Democrats uh, even ignore their own constituents here for the most part in uh, trying to trying to gain power. We'll see if it actually works for them though. You know, Greg, for a long time, you had this very unusual kind of political alliance between African-American Democrats who liked having a majority minority district, usually in a bunch of states in the South. And what happens when you put a lot of African-Americans all in one district, that district ends up becoming very, very Democratic. And whoever is representing that district pretty much has, you know, they'll retire when they feel like it. They're, they are almost guaranteed to, as long as they win the primary, they're going to win re-election year after year. And sometimes it's going to be 70, 30, 80, 20, you know, 90, 10, something like that. Of course, once you put all of the Democratic-leaning African-American voters in one district, well, generally you've got three or four more districts that are all generally white and much more conservative and much better to the Republicans. So you had this kind of this unusual coalition in which Republicans, hey, 
we think having a majority minority district is important too. We're we're going to make sure you've got the best minority minorities we could possibly draw for you. And by and large, you know, there's African American congressmen who are perfectly comfortable with that because that meant they had a very safe seat. Democrats began to realize this isn't working for us. Now the irony is, is that then creates two districts that are now not a slam dunk for them. And in a good year like this, like could be for the Republicans, maybe this just these seats they're drawing aren't going to be so safe. So. And the other thing also is keep in mind that year by year, people move, population shift. It's not a guarantee. You know, the way things look in 2022 is not necessarily how things are going to look in 2026, 2028, and by the end of the decade. So I, I kind of feel like this these battles get a little more overhyped than necessary. That, that in the end, you still have to be out, go out and be a good candidate and, and you know, uh, win the votes. Uh, you know, Republicans have won, you know, uh, uh, Wiener's old district in New York. Uh, congressional district in Hawaii in a special election, you know, seemingly unwinnable districts can be can win if you end up in a, the right set of circumstances. So all in all, I think this is, all, you know, a lot of the gerrymandering has been excuse making by Democrats and how frequently they end up losing the House of Representatives after having it in their back pocket for the better part of like four decades. It's like everything else with the Democrats. When they're not in power, they whine about the people who are in power. And once they have power, they wield it ruthlessly. And then mm-hmm. they yeah. rinse and repeat. That's what all they do. All right, Jim, uh, keep feeling better, and we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. And please tell your friends about us as well. We thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Monday. And please join us on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey guys, we know it's hard to keep up with all the news these days, but don't worry because we're here to talk about it all. Gavin Newsom is called a hypocrite after appearing maskless at an indoor event with celebrities. We may never be mask-free on planes again, and Valentine's Day, the holiday for love and spending money, is right around the corner. Hey, it's the Chicks here from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.